0: All right, so let's, let's go before the Lord and open up uh, with, with our petition for him. We are going to be in uh, Acts 17. We're going to do a quick review, and then we're going to start at verse 10. Okay. Father, we <clears throat> depend upon you to be able to discern the Scriptures, your Holy Spirit, to open up our heart, to open up our minds to what it is that you have to say to us today. Lord, we thank you for this record and this account that you've left us by the Holy Spirit and by the hand of Luke Um, to be, uh, to model this early church, Lord, but also to give us uh, wisdom and direction right where we're at right now in our life. So uh, I pray, God, that you would uh, minister to us today through this study. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 17, Paul's first, second, or third missionary journey. Which one is it? Anyone? Second missionary journey. And he is now, uh, we, we started out that he you know went to Thessalonica and obviously he wrote the two letters to the Thessalonians right after this, <clears throat> right around the same time, probably within a couple of years or right away. Could have been writing it on his way, who knows, but it's dated around AD 52 to 54, 55, something like that. We see Paul going here. He gets into this, uh, goes into the... Um, synagogues as is his, his tradition he starts preaching the uh that Jesus is the Christ and we talked about that word Christ what do we th- what do we think of when we hear the word Christ what what do we think the, of when we think of that word what does it mean what did we talk about last week anyone remember it means it means <clears throat> Two things. One, it means Messiah. So it's Christos, the Christ, means the Messiah. And the, Messiah, the word Messiah <clears throat> means the anointed one. And anytime you see that word anointed one, the, that phrase in the scriptures, it's always referring to royalty, kingship. And so the Jews, when they say they're waiting for the Messiah and they're waiting for the king of the Jews to come, it can be used interchangeably. Um, but very particularly in the book of Acts, when we see the word Christ or Messiah, um, it, it, it has even more emphasis on Christ's royalty and his kingship. Um, and because this is the core of their teaching is the resurrection. And... Um, Resurrection, as we're going to talk about today in our sermon, has everything to do with forgiveness of sins, coming out of exile, being free, and having new life. And so <clears throat> this message did not sit right with the people at Thessalonica. This was a, a Roman outpost. Why did, not, why did Christ being king threaten? Or what did Christ being king threaten? to these people. Caesar's rule. Caesar's rule. As soon as you you say there's another king, you are are ultimately saying that the existing king is not valid. Um, It was a very serious threat back then, especially in the Roman culture, to talk about another king. We could talk about another president. We could talk about another governor. It's really not no one's really going to pay much attention to it. But if you start talking about violence as it relates to our current president and you start making that known, chances are even if you talk about it on the phone, you're going to get a knock on your door or you're going to get investigated because people take those threats very seriously. And that's pretty much how they took it when you even said there was another king back then. It was a very, very dangerous thing to talk about. Um, And so a lot of these letters, you know, especially the letters to the Romans and and some of these other letters, they're uh, sometimes cryptic in that way, um, to try to not be compromising, but to not throw it in the face face so blatantly either. So um, we read about uh, somebody's house getting attacked, that's Jason, by these leaders, the magistrates, and they drug him before the court, the authorities, And the accusation was what? That he's housing these people who want a new king. Yeah. Jason has welcomed them and they are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar. What's the decree of Caesar? That they were saying that there is another king. So that's the decree of Caesar saying you are not able to do that. You could look back throughout the a real interesting study on this is to go through Second um, Samuel and look at the the battle that David even had with some of the other Abiathar and Absalom. These are these are his sons that were against him after God said your house is going to now be divided because of his sin with Bathsheba, and um, you know just the actual talk of these guys claiming that they were king. Um, created havoc and and, and almost divided the kingdom. And so they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities, and then Jason paid a bail, and he was released. And so that's pretty much, we talked a lot about about kingship and the kingdom of God last week. I don't want to rehash uh, any of that. I'd like to jump into verse 10 and really focus in on verses 10 to 15 today because these are one of the most interesting groups of people, I think, in the whole book of Acts the Bereans. And so does anybody want to read verses 10 through 15?
1: Go ahead, Gab. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On, on arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul was said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible.
0: Thank you. So, yeah, Thessalonica is up here in Macedonia. I know you guys can't see this, but right underneath that is Berea. So it's about 20 miles, probably a 20 mile distance from Berea, from Thessalonica. So as we see, we see the Jewish people are following them around. They, they know what they're up to. You're going from city to city, you're preaching Jesus, and we're, not, we're gonna go and cause havoc. Um, we see that throughout all the scriptures here in, in the book of Acts. But the, the interesting thing about the Bereans were number one, they were more noble-minded. What does that mean? Was it? Does it mean that they were smarter? Potentially, Berea was a very uh, popular uh, place for academics. It was a more of a uh, upscale community, a little bit more wealthier. People took this a little bit more serious. And so they received the word with great eagerness. This is what they were, this is what they loved. They examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And so this is a great example of what we have to do as Christians, especially with all the different teachings that are thrown out there to us, even within our our own orthodoxy, even within our own, Denomination, even within our own, you know, we all of us have Christian friends who we know know the Lord, and then you know they'll come out with some sort of doctrine that just doesn't seem right, you know, and maybe they belong to a different denomination that emphasizes that doctrine, or whatever the case is, maybe they read the scriptures a little bit differently. And so, the Bereans what they did is they went and they searched the scriptures, they did not have you know Bible Gateway online any one of us right now could pull up this scripture on the internet and find out the greek interpretation of it find out where else it's used in the scriptures very quickly they did not have that that ability to do that they were familiar with the scriptures but they had scrolls that were very very long probably as long or even double as long as those tables right there So to search the scriptures was not an easy thing, but it shows that they really put a lot of weight on what the Old Testament said about the things that they were preaching about Jesus. Forgiveness, the Messiah coming, how he would come, where he would be born, how he would die, the fact that he had to rise from the dead, the fact that he had to ascend up into heaven. So they examine these things, and therefore, in verse 12, many of them believed after they searched the Scriptures, both prominent Greek women and men. So what I'd like to talk about a little bit today is how do we search the Scriptures? How do we search the Bible to find out and to squeeze out the truth of a verse? How come somebody can read one verse and get a completely different thing out of it somebody can else can read that same verse get another completely different thing out of it and then you have another verse and somebody else gets a completely different doctrine what do you think determines this how how do we how do you search the scriptures what do you do when you want to find out if something is true or you want to find out what ser- something really truly means how do we search the scriptures
1: Context. You have to know the context, what what was going on around the time and what the the heroes were taking it as.
0: Yes. Context is the king of of hermeneutics. (laughs) Yeah, very good, Debbie. Context, I like that. Context is king of hermeneutics. Um, what's going on around that time is a great question to ask. And so the, the ease the the shorthand for that is is who is the audience? And, and really the most important out of context is what is the intent of the writer when he's writing that scripture? So you can't just pull out um, a scripture and say, verse 22 in, in chapter 17, Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all aspects. We can't just pull out that scripture and sort of make it, uh, say whatever it is that we want to say. Well, maybe, you know, our, our job now is to go to the Areopagus in Greece and preach. Is that what that means? Um, if the Areopagus was a ruling council, does that mean we have to just preach to ruling councils? No, we have to go and say, who wrote this letter? It was Luke. What's the intent here? Who's he writing to? He's writing to the, he's recording the, 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 the acts of the early Christians. What type of literature is this? This is a historical narrative. This isn't a didactic teaching. What I mean by that is uh, a didactic teaching is when the scripture says, here's how you are to do things or here's how you are to behave. And that's like a, you know, like Romans is a very didactic book. It talks about faith, being justified by faith. It talks about uh, so many other different doctrines and it's very, very systematic and, and it teaches um, something very specific that the author was trying to um, trying to explain, so <clears throat> the method that I just explained to you is called the grammatical uh, historical method, or the historical grammatical method of hermeneutics, and it 's just history, like Debbie just said. And, and then that I colored in a little bit, intent of the author, listening, what's going on around, what you know, all those things. And also <clears throat> um, the grammar of the like what the word actually means because in in the Greek especially, every word, almost every word in the Greek, um, could could a lot of these words have multiple, multiple meanings depending on the the, the intent of the writer. Simple words. Like I was talking about a couple of weeks ago when we were explaining Thessalonians about the, the concept of rapture, where we're going to meet the Lord in the air. That word meet is eight different meanings to it in the Greek. Eight different meanings. You and I, it, when we think about it in English, maybe it has two or three meanings. But... <clears throat> When we look at that and we say, all right, it's got eight different meanings. And then we look at that word and say, wow, it's only used once or twice in this specific context. Then we know we could partner with that word in our study. We could find out where else it's used in the same way to try to get Garner more intent from the author. Why did he choose this word? And so the same thing in the Gospels. Like we're reading through the gospel of John now and we're reading the account of the crucifixion and resurrection, right? But Matthew, Mark, and Luke have different versions of this episode that John is recording in John 19 and 20. So some people say, well, these are contradictory. No, they're not. Because they all fit together if you, if you piece them together. But rather than try to do that, our goal would be is why is John telling it this way? Why is he only mentioning Mary Magdalene where the other gospels mention Mary and three other women? You know, why is John specifically use this type of word once in this context where Mark uses it 10 other times? And so you want to be able to, to, when you study the scriptures, you want to use your brain and, and use the tools that we have and try to really squeeze out the meaning of the text because we have the barrier of our modern translations. And so a lot of the modern translations that we use, that's why I like to use the NASB because it's the most literal translation. It's not trying to paraphrase um, or transliterate the meaning of the scripture. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but if I was gonna take this scripture and transliterate it now, I'm gonna have a bias towards my theology when I, trans- when I translate that, right? I'm gonna to a, to lean towards saying certain things. Like, if the word salvation comes up, and I am, you know, all's I'm thinking, and, and, and I'm writing and interpreting this in, um, in the early uh, uh, 20th century, you know, salvation is going to be a very mystical sort of thing. Like in, in the early 1900s, salvation was all about going to heaven because the age of reason and uh, uh, atheism and Darwinism and everything came in. And so the theologians at the time sort of weren't ready for this sucker punch that now science is proving the Bible wrong. So instead of fighting it and showing that it's impossible to even have science without God, a lot of these theologians just said, let's just spiritualize everything. And so that's when we have a lot of this get-me-out-of-here gospel, this emphasis on disembodied spirits in terms of heaven. It's all Aristotle and Plato and a lot of these other sort of philosophies coming in. And that's what their defense. So when you see stuff like the Schofield Bible and uh, and you know John Darby's notes and all that stuff, they're going to err on the side of their theology. So what we want to do is we want to be able to discern through that and get to the text, get to the original text, what the words mean, what the context is, and and understanding history and things like that is, is very, very important. Now, <clears throat> there's other methods. So the, the method that I'm taught, this is, and this is to me really super important, especially as we talk amongst unbelievers and and talk in circles, even in Christianity, people often say, well, I read the Bible literally. I read it literally. I take it for what it literally means. And so that can be a little bit of a misnomer. Why, Aunt? Uh, Because you can't really, you're going from one language to another and it doesn't, really makes sense if you, uh, you have to look at how it was said in the original language. Right. If you're wanting to do serious study or compare multiple translations. Right. And, you, and you, you know, if you go to something like the book of Revelation and you say, well, I'm going to take this literally, you know, we have all sorts of things. Like um, we have uh, the beasts coming up out of the sea. We have dragons. We have eating scrolls. Um, we have um, uh, locusts with lion's heads and stingers and all these other things. So can we take the book of Revelation literally? Yes, but not literal as, it, as we read it. Literally, when you say something, you're taking the Bible literally. It says you're literally taking it for what the author's t- intent was, the audience perception, and the type of book that it is. So if I take a a book that's written in apocalyptic language, like the book of Revelation, and I start applying literal stuff to it, I'm gonna be very confused because the book's not gonna make any sense to me. But when I look at it as the revelation, the apocalypse is what the revelation means, the sudden revealing, that's what it's called, that's what that means, then I can put those glasses on and read and understand that book a lot better. So what type of book are we reading? What's the context, historical, word meanings, that stuff? What's the intent of the author? And then once you understand that, then what I want you to do is go throughout the scriptures and see other places that that, whatever you extracted out of that, where other places in scripture with the the author had the same intent or said the same thing or used the same word, where else can you confirm that in scripture? And that's where we get the unity of scripture. So we wanna be very careful because uh, right now we, we have movements, uh, there's, there's basically four different ways to read the scripture. We have what they call the literal, which is what I just explained, the grammatical, uh, the historical grammatical interpretation which I believe is the, the, the most logical and best way to read the Holy Spirit has a mean, one meaning for the text. There's not like all these other different meanings. There's lots of applications. But when this word was spoken, what I am speaking to you right now, I'm intending for you to understand this. I don't, you, if you listen to this uh, uh, Bible study in 50 years from now, you need to make sure that you understand that I'm sitting in a room full of hundreds of people. No, I'm just kidding. I'm sitting in a room with less than a dozen people and we're talking about the book of Acts. And, and so you can't take my words and say, oh, they mean something different now, 50 years from now to those people. The only thing you do is you find out the truth of the scripture. Once you find out what that author means and what that author says, you now have the Holy Spirit's intent. And now you can apply it faithfully. And when you apply scripture and after that, it cuts like a knife, it pierces people's hearts, it pierces your own heart, it convicts, okay? So that's what we have to do, we have to get, we have to dig, 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 dig to the meat of the scripture, find out what it means, and then we say, so what? Now what, why? And once you find the meaning of the scripture, you ask the big questions, who, what, where, when, why, how, and you keep peeling back back the onion. And that's where you get application out of it. And so that's the literal method. Now there's also uh, a moral interpretation of the scriptures. And that is where, and this is where a lot of the churches that have gone liberal, like uh, the Presbyterian Church of of, um, uh, the PCUSA, the Methodist Church, um, a, a lot of the liberal denominations use the moral, ethical interpretation method. And that means that scripture's true, but only as it relates to the moral application that we get out of it. It doesn't necessarily need to have really happened. It doesn't matter if Jesus really walked on water. The moral application of that, the ethical application of that is, you know, if you believe, you can nothing can stop you. Whatever they'll go with that, with that scripture. You know? and, and so is that right or wrong? Well, in that context, it's wrong. If you start with that and then try to apply, it's gonna be wrong. However, if I drill down on the scripture and find out the meat and really what it means and then give a moral application, that's good. You follow me? But you can't start with the moral or the other one is the allegorical. And St. Thomas Aquinas was was popular for endorsing that. And so before him was Origen. These were early church, uh, Origen was an early church father. He allegorized the whole entire scripture. The whole thing was a story of how we can, what we can get out of it and we can manipulate it in basically any way that you want. You, you take um, something like uh, Jesus walking on water and we could, we could allegorize that and say it's foreshadowing a time when we will be uh, in glory Um, walking on streets of gold or being able to do supernatural things. And it just sort of takes the meaning from the text and completely wipes it away. So you have the literal, like I said, which I believe is the right way. And then you have the moral, you have the allegorical, and then you have the anagogical or the mystical, which is way, way out there. Um, And, and there you're looking at, you know, you've, you've, you've heard the, I don't know, a book came out a while ago, really popular, called, um, about the num- the numerology of, of the Bible. Oh, the hidden codes of the Bible. Yeah, the Bible code. Bible code, thank you. And so, like, everything is numerical, and uh, every name has a numeric value, every event has a numeric value, and you could just go off on this. And this is what, like, um, remember David Koresh, right? And in... in, uh, in um, Uh, Waco, Texas, you know, that's what he did with the book of Revelation. He used a combination of anagogical and analogical, I'm sorry, allegorical interpretation and turned himself into the Messiah and turned himself into the one that is going to create the literal book of Revelation to come reality. That's what that's what he did. And so can you use foreshadows? Can you use types Absolutely, there are amazing uh, hermeneutical techniques that the Holy Spirit puts in the Bible, right? Like, like Adam, Jesus is the second Adam. We can, we, can, we can infer that from, obviously the scripture confirms that and calls him that, but that's, Adam is a type of, of Christ. Joseph is a type of Christ. Noah was a type of Christ. You know, we can go on and on and on and on, but we first have to drill down to the truth and then we make those applications. We don't start out with that. So you've got to search the scriptures. You, the, I recommend um, using a, a, an online tool. Uh, I like to use Blue Letter Bible. That's just my choice, but there's so many of them out there. There's Bible apps and everything where you could go in and search. Um, well, first of all, I love the Halley's Bible Handbook. The Haley's Bible Handbook will give you the general context of the apps of the book, and then give you the context of the chapter. It's not a commentary, it's just giving you the idea of what's going on in the historical context. It'll also point to some cross references, things like that. And you read something like that along with your scripture, and then if you get a little stuck, you can go on blue letter, search the word, see what it means in the Greek, see what the verb tense is. Is it an active verb, is it, a, is, it, is it past tense, is it active tense, is it future tense? And all these things can give you a really good insight. To give you an example, Romans chapter eight says, um, you know, for those whom he predestined, um, he, for those he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, we always think of glorification as what? The future. It, it is. But Paul's not talking about future here because that's a past tense verb, glorified. It's already happened. So does that mean it's not gonna happen in the future? No, no. Paul's talking about a positional glorification. God already sees us for who we're going to be. It's already happened in his book. But yes, it will also happen too. Now, if you look and just read that and teach off of that, and I talk all about future glorification without telling you that it's really positional glorification, then I'm missing the point in the intent of the text of the author. So it's really good to to search especially if you're in a if you're reading a chapter and you got a few words that, you know, that are sort of I don't know, uh, could be used in different ways, look them up and see what they mean. Have fun with it. The deeper you go, the more blown away you'll be by the wisdom of God in, in his scriptures. So, I hope I didn't go on too much of a tangent, but It's it blue letter blueletterbible.org. Blue That's my favorite one. Um, and it's got everything on there. I don't so much use the commentaries on there. I just, I just like to use it to do word searches. Um, you know, for instance, today uh, there's a word in, a, in the sermon that is used 175 or 170. I'm not going to tell you what it is until the sermon, but it's used 176 times in the Bible. But this same word also is used in another sense three times but yet it's used in a fourth sense only once. And that's in our scripture today. So that to me is really big because John the author picked that word over the, all the other words that he could have chose. So why is he doing that? Because he wants us to, he wants us to know that and, and wants to emphasize that. You follow what I'm saying? So that's something important to know when you're studying scripture. Now, there's there's different types of reading, right? The Bereans they didn't say let's just have a devotional and see if we can pull this stuff up. No, this is this is real uh, um, exegesis where you're going in and trying to extract the truth out of that 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 text. And by ha- by doing proper exegesis, you avoid something that's called isogesis, not. Iso-Jesus, but Jesus, I-S-O-E-G-E-S-I-S. And that is going in with a preconceived notion about what the scripture means and imposing that on the text. As opposed to saying, I'm going in here open-minded, I'm gonna see what the text means, and then I am going to make my assumptions. So, so important, guys, that, that, we, that we get this. Um, but there's also times where you just wanna read the Bible, and sort of let it wash over you. You, you don't want to be like, you know, drilling down. And that's okay too. As most of us here have been reading the word for a while and you can, you can do that. You know, you could just sort of devotionally read it. And so I, I encourage you to do both, but especially if you're searching for truth, we have to be prepared to give an answer for anybody that asks for the hope that's in us, but do it with gentleness and, and respect, right? That's what 2 Peter says or 1 Peter. Uh, 4 is it first peter 4 or first peter 3 i think first peter 3 so we have to do that so how do we do that by searching and knowing the scriptures <clears throat> any questions on that any comments was that helpful did you get that everybody got that i didn't i didn't go too far on a tangent and confuse you Gab's giving me the thumbs up. All right, good. So, yeah, so um, let's jump back into our text. Um, <clears throat> the word of God, been complete. so 14. So after the Thessalonians came or the people from Thessalonica came to harass the Jews, I'm sorry, the Jews. <coughs> Rewind that. After the people from Thessalonica came to harass Paul and Timothy and Silas, they started stirring up the crowds, agitating the crowds. So 14, they immediately sent Paul out to go as far as the sea and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. So there was this, this was a hot situation. Paul had a target on his back. Notice Timothy and Silas stayed. So they were probably not seen as much as the agitator as Paul was, which tells me that Paul was a real, he would probably was really bold, really uh, just firm in his beliefs and probably didn't have much fear. Um, And we could see that as we go on to our next part of the passage where he goes in front of the Areopagus on Mars Hill and speaks boldly to the uh, Epicureans and Stoic philosophers. So, what basically he did, pull out my handy map that you guys can all see so well. So he's in Berea here. So now he's dro- he's going down to Athens. So what they did is they just made a beeline right for the coast, which was probably about five or six miles. And he jumped on a boat and sailed down the coast. And he went and he got into probably uh, Euboea, it's called, and he got onto land there, and he went to Athens. And Athens is um, another very popular place at the time, still is today, but it, is, uh, it was full of idols, full. Like people said that there were more idols and statues in Athens than there were people. That's the truth. That's how many gods that they had. And um, they were very, uh, it was a very promiscuous culture. Pleasure was worshiped. Um, So a lot of these statues were phallic in nature, obscene. Um, So Paul's spirit, it says in verse 16, was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. So what provokes your spirit as it relates to Figs of God. When somebody uses God's
1: name in vain. You know, or he uses the name as a curse.
0: Yeah. That is something that really gets me, right? Remember that time, Noah, when we were? Baseball? We were, in ba- well, he was playing baseball. This was like five or six years ago. And the coach was just a, he was a foul mouth. And, you know, I'm fine. He's gonna, I, I, I wasn't gonna say anything to him. I was giving him grace. But then he said, you know, the worst curse word you could ever think of along with the name of Jesus. And that's where I crossed the line. And so I was so angry. It provoked my spirit that I did. I didn't go up to him because I knew there would be a confrontation because of the type of guy he was. So I went to the guy that's the head of the league. And I I told him, I said, this, you know, I'm going to pull my kid out of here. If he keeps talking like that, that's just terrible dishonor in the Lord's name. So that definitely provokes my spirit too. Um, uh, he just was told, he never said it again that I know of, okay. but he was just a real loud mouth guy, you know, big old guy. So anything else provoke your spirit? I had, I had um, uh,
1: one of the people I worked with, she had a miscarriage um, after, you know, um, try, you know, having infer- uh, you know in vitro re- relations done several times, and and she just was so angry. and said, "God can't hear me. There's no way. There's a God. He could let this happen." Well, immediately, my heart like, yeah. and, uh, and I prayed, "God, defend yourself. Defend yourself." I like, yeah. prayed this constantly. You know, show her that you are there, and. Six months later, she was pregnant. Wow. She th- thought for sure it was never going to happen. And, and, and to this, I never, she ended moving on and I never got to talk to her. But I really want to tell her, you know, God was defending his name because mm. God is a God who, you know, he heard that. Yeah. <laughs> she, like I heard it. And it just, you know. Yeah. But uh, it just tore me. That, mm. how could, you know, she say that. Yeah.
0: You know. She, I know.
1: So, you know, sometimes, you know, your spirit does get like. You know, God, prove yourself to them because there's no way,
0: you know, you don't know what's going on here, you know? Yeah. So. Anybody else? See, Paul was provoked by the idolatry. He was observing the city full of idols and he was provoked. And I think the, the, what I, what the lesson from that is I look and say, when, when you know the Lord and you, you see people being given over to things that, you know, as the Bible says, they have ears, but they hear not eyes. They see not mouths. They speak not. And those that worship them are like them. You know, that's like these people look at these idols and they, and they're being deceived. Um, and I know for like, when we go out on the boardwalk and go to the outreach, you know, you're like, usually if, if I go out to the boardwalk with my family, you know, I'm having fun with my kids or, fighting with my wife or whatever. And, um, and so, just kidding. And so, uh, you know, it's not like my, my, my heart is being provoked, although I do think about it, you know, like, wow, these people, a lot of wonder if they know the Lord and whatever. But when, when you pray about going out to evangelize and you're getting ready to go out and you're like, you're praying about it and you're like, Lord, help me, give me wisdom. And you're packing your tracks up and you go out there. It's like now, it's like everything is heightened. Your senses are heightened by the reality of all these people not knowing Christ and having to shortly face death and face Him. And then your spirit gets provoked. Like you want to be able to share with these people, you want to do whatever you can to, to convince them and not to be an offense, let the gospel be the offense. And so I think that's what, what you know, Luke is showing us this. As we try to model Paul, I think that we have to look at people and look at things through the eyes of Christ. So put the Jesus glasses on and look and see the stuff that's going on in our world through Christ's eyes. Not through our eyes, because if we do it through our eyes, it's usually our pride's gonna get in the way and other things are gonna get in the way, but when we put the loving glasses of Christ on, we'll have compassion for those people. And, and so Paul, I believe he did that. 17, he said he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. So this is a, I love that, those that happened to be there. It wasn't like Paul said, I'm going to the synagogue on Saturday during the Sabbath. It was like, Paul's like, well, I'm here in Athens, um, let me go hide myself from all these idols. No, he went right out in the middle of it, in the marketplace. And he stood there, and whoever happened to be there, I'm sure he just started a conversation. What do you think about all these idols? What do you think about God? What do you think about the Messiah? Are you Jewish? You know, are you this, are you that? And Paul was able to talk to the Jews and the Gentiles. He was reasoning in the marketplace. Now, I was never in Greece, but Gab was, right? Mm-hmm. Did you see? Did you, Did you see this area that they're talking about? The, the marketplace from the Areopagus and Mars Hill and all that. Yeah. What What is it like now? Um, there's still like all the temples and a lot of statues. It's all obviously in more disrepair. But yeah. It's, like, a lot of it's still there, even if it's just um, rubble sometimes. Yeah. Really? Yeah. That must be very so cool. For. Yeah, it's uncared for? The, the area, area, because there's like this plaque that says a thing about Paul. And, and then that's this it. Whole thing, and then you go up the top, and everyone's smoking and drinking. Oh, really? <laughs> so it hasn't changed much. No, it's probably changed a lot, but it's a different change. Yeah. And so, verse 18, um, you know, this is very easily paralleled over to us to this day. Um, there were Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul. And so Epicureanism is so much prevalent today. We don't call it that, but Epicureanism is a, is a form of hedonism and their philosophy of life is that physical pleasure is the highest good that somebody can attain. And isn't that what we are being constantly bombarded with in every advertisement that we ever see has, has something to do with making you feel better, either physically or about yourself. If you can look a certain way, you'll feel better about yourself. You can wear this and you'll feel better because people will like you and look at you. You know, you can eat this and you will feel better. Yeah, driving down here, beer and football go together perfectly, right? I mean, it's, they're trying to tell you, you wanna feel great as you're feeling great watching the game, well, add beer to it, and that's gonna make you feel great, right? They don't tell you all the other things that it makes you feel like. But it's just a constant bombardment with this philosophy of pleasure, 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 pleasure. And almost every single, uh, uh, I would say, unbiblical philosophy is, has something to do with that. Um, they also felt that mental pleasure was even, if you could attain that, was even better than physical pleasure. And so if you could attain to the highest uh, euphoric feeling that you could possibly have on a regular basis you could be happy all the time then that's even better than physical pleasure because physical pleasure stops mental pleasure will continue they had no fear of death or anxiety about death Um, they didn't believe necessarily in the afterlife or they didn't care too much about it some of them felt about karma, like if whatever they do here good will end up in the new, in the next life. Stoicism is reason and knowledge; they are the highest virtue. So, Paul was a modern day apologist in this situation, because he's talking with people that are saying, "Well, the having knowledge and understanding where knowledge comes from, and being able to talk about the different theories of knowledge." That is the highest level that you can attain: somebody who's smart, somebody who is using their brain, using their reason, priding themselves on the fact that my reason tells me that there, there, there is no one creator, otherwise he would show himself. you know and so these are the, these are the defenses that the people, even today, will atheists and, and stuff, will use the same sort of defense. Um, They also did believe, some of the Stoics believed that God providentially ruled, but not in the affairs of men. Does anybody know what that's called in modern day philosophy? Deism. Deism. Right, so God basically wound up the world and let it go, and he's back here. He's not a personal God. He's providentially ruling, but he's not in the affairs in present reality. So this is the, some of the things that Paul was dealing with. Um, they were saying, uh, "Why? what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is, which you are proclaiming, for you're bringing some strange things to our ears. So we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians did, and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So let's stop there, and uh, next week we'll we'll finish Acts seventeen. We'll we'll let's, we'll take a look at Paul's um, sermon, evangelistic sermon, to the to these Greeks, and at the Areopagus on Mars Hill. Much different sermon than he's preaching in the in the synagogues. So if you can, you could read ahead of that. But hopefully um, you, you can uh, hopefully got something out of today in terms of searching and reading the scripture. Um, if you have any questions on it, let me know. Does anybody have any, uh, any, com- any last comments or questions or applications? Okay, so we'll end there. Father, thank you for your time with us today in this study. Lord, I pray that you, your Holy Spirit would guide our hand as we search the scriptures, guide our mind, that you would give us the boldness of Paul, Lord, that when our spirit is provoked, Lord, that we would uh, pray and we would take the opportunity to speak, Lord, and that we would stand firm on what your word says, that it never returns void. And Lord, we do pray for the unbelievers. Lord, we pray for our service today. We pray, Lord, that you would move in a powerful way in all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.